You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 11 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. The primary election is coming up on Tuesday, but many people have already voted. Like more than two dozen other states, Minnesota allows no-excuse absentee voting. We're going to preview the primary this hour, what's at stake in some of the key races. But let's start with how the election will be different because of the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me now is Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. Mr. Secretary, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. More than half a million people as of last week had requested absentee ballots. Now, we haven't had these uh, no-excuse absentees for long, but that has to be a new record, right? Absolutely. We are at 10 times the number that we were on the exact same date two years ago and almost 20 times the number that we were four years ago, the last presidential election. There's no question. There's an appetite for this. People are choosing to vote from home this year. What does it mean for counting on Election Day? When will we know the results? Well, for the primary next week, the legislature wisely, in uh, when it was in uh, regular session, gave counties and cities an extra two days after the election to count the ballots. That's because they anticipated, and they were right, a tidal wave of requests for people to vote from home, to vote absentee and then mail ballots in. So this election night is going to feel different from other election nights. We're used to having a sense of instant gratification on election night, knowing pretty much every vote that's come in. We're not going to know that. What we will know on election night is we'll know all of the counts for all of the in-person votes that day. We'll know all of the absentee ballots that have been taken in as of that day. But what we won't know is the absentee ballots that have come in on Monday and on Tuesday, which, according to a court order and some related litigation, uh, will allow voters to do. In other words, they can postmark their ballot by Election Day as long as it gets in by the following Thursday, two days later. So bottom line is we'll know everything by Thursday night, but we won't know absolutely everything by Tuesday night. Hmm. And if there is a stack of absentee ballots that have already come in, just sitting there on election day, can the election managers start counting early before the polls close? So they can start processing the ballots starting 14 days before the election. That goes for the primary, that goes for the general election, and that too was the result of legislative action this session. So they'll have two days after the election, and they'll have 14 days before the election to start opening those envelopes and processing those results. And if you are voting by absentee ballot and haven't sent in the ballot yet, what should you do to make sure that the ballot is counted? Well, let's start from this premise. Um, the, the due date, it's got to get in there by Thursday, two days after the election, but must be postmarked by Tuesday, no later than Tuesday. So today, as we sit here on Friday, uh, you know, it depends on the tolerance for risk, right? If you think six days is enough, today's Friday, it's due next Thursday, then you should pop it in the mail. If you don't uh, want to tolerate that risk, then the best thing to do would be to hand deliver it or have someone you know hand deliver it to the place that is listed on your envelope, typically a county election office. And so that would be the best way to do it. You don't have to return it by mail, but you do have to drop it off to the place that's listed on the ballot. Or on the envelope. Okay. And, and 
amid all this absentee voting, will the normal polling places, all the normal places still be open on Tuesday? Yes. So we have just about 3,000 polling places in Minnesota, and they will be open, all of them, on primary day, just as they will all be open uh, in the November general election. So for those who want to vote that way, they can vote that way. And I should point out to your listeners that we are making every effort to make that as clean and safe as possible. So we have spent the time, energy, effort, and money to purchase and distribute to each one of those 3,000 polling places hand sanitizer, pumps, wipes, high-grade masks for all the poll workers and election judges, uh, disposable masks for voters who might show up without them. Uh, We have social distancing protocols, wipe-down of the polling surfaces after every use. So people can rest assured that we're doing everything we can to make the polling place itself as safe as possible for everyone who chooses that option. And you are strongly recommending that people wear masks when they come to vote, but you're you're stopping short of saying that it's required. How come? Well, it's required under state law that you wear a mask, period. But if someone chooses to violate that law and say, nonetheless, give me a ballot, we can't tie use of a mask to a constitutional right like voting. So here's what will happen. If a voter goes in to the polling place without a mask, they're going to be offered a mask or they're going to be asked to wear a mask. Or if they still refuse to wear a mask, then they will be asked about uh, some other workaround, like might the voter want to just vote in the hallway away from other voters? Or might the voter want to vote at their vehicle, which is something we have in Minnesota called curbside voting. If despite those offers, the voter still persists and still insists on voting right where everyone else is voting without a mask, then constitutionally, uh, we can't require them. We can't condition one on the other and say, no, you don't get a ballot unless you wear a mask. We can't do that. So ultimately, they they will be able to vote, but they will be asked and offered uh, mask wearing. You know, President Trump tweeted last week that he likes absentee ballots, but not mail-in ballots. Is, Is there a difference? There is a difference. I don't think it's that big of one. Um, So what he doesn't like is something that Minnesota is not doing statewide. In other words, we're not doing the thing that he's really targeting. What he objects to is a system sometimes called universal mail balloting, meaning if you are a registered voter, if you're already in the system, you automatically get a ballot mailed to you, whether you asked for it, requested it, or even wanted it you get it if you're a registered voter. And there are about six or seven states this cycle that are doing that, most of whom had already been doing it even before the pandemic. That's what he objects to. What we're doing is basically our absentee system. We're calling it vote from home, but it's basically the absentee system where the voter has to do something. Nothing comes automatically. The voter has to ask as by going to our website, mnvotes.org. So when people go to mnvotes.org, it takes about five minutes maximum to order that ballot to come to them, or they can fill out a paper request by going to a city hall or county courthouse or otherwise getting the paper. But that's really the principal difference. Uh, after that period, the, the, the rest is the same, which is the ballot comes to the voter. The voter votes on his or her own time within a period of days or weeks and then sends the ballot back by mail or, in some cases, hand delivers it. But it's that threshold piece of does the voter have to do something Or does the voter who's registered not have to do something? That's really the only difference. Hmm. Well, the president has also been saying for weeks now that uh, mail-in ballots open the door to fraud and uh, crime, you know, cheating. How do you respond to that? Well, 
that's not the case in Minnesota. And here's here's how sometimes the question comes at me. And it's it's a fair question, by the way, for anyone to ask. It might go something like this. People say, hey, what about all these blank ballots? Thousands and thousands of blank ballots just being sent to people in the mail. What's to prevent someone from stealing a bunch off of a pallet in a post office or hanging out by unguarded residential mailboxes and swiping two or 10 or 20 or 100 and then sending them in and voting them all? What's to stop that? Fair question. Mm -hmm. And the answer in Minnesota is clear. Uh, That doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is when you order the absentee ballot online or otherwise. So if you went to mnvotes.org, you'll see that you're asked to supply some personal identifying information. It can be a number of things. It could be last four of social security number. It could be a driver's license number. It could be other things. So unless the mailbox thief knows the precise form of personal identifying information that the intended voter used when the intended voter ordered the ballot, unless he knows that, his plan is going to be foiled. He could vote 100 ballots and swipe them out of mailboxes, but they will never, ever be counted. They will be destroyed. They will be given no weight and no worth. And so that has sustained us for many decades in Minnesota, that kind of system. And that's why when I ask people who have been around this a lot longer than I have for decades, do you know of a single case in Minnesota where that happened, where a mailbox thief got away with it and was able to vote a ballot from someone who uh, wasn't uh, him? And the answer is no. They don't know of a single case where that happened in Minnesota. Now, maybe there was one. They just don't know of it. And so that served us well for a long, long time. In your experience, and as you've been talking to these folks, is there any evidence that mail-in voting helps or hurts one particular party's candidates more than the other? Not at all. In fact, the contrary is true. There is no partisan advantage whatsoever. There are just as many Republicans as Democrats who like to vote this way and do vote this way. If you look geographically, if you look demographically, There is no partisan advantage here. And others have validated that. Stanford University just did a study. Others have done studies, too, to see whether there's some advantage hidden in there for a particular party, and there isn't. This is about comfort and convenience for a lot of people. But this year, there's an added reason why so many, I suspect, are turning to this method of voting, and that's that it's arguably a public service. Every person who chooses to vote from home this year is arguably making the polling place a little bit safer for everyone else, not just the voters for the 30,000 poll workers that we need to put on an election. Well, I assume the pandemic will still be here in November. Um, Will there be enough election judges then? And will any problems you run into this time be magnified when the turnout presumably will be much, much higher? Well, in every year and every election, one big advantage of the primary is it's kind of a dress rehearsal for the general election. As you point out, the magnitude is a lot lower. The numbers are a lot lower. But you can sense what some of the soft spots are. And that will be one that we're looking at very closely. All the jurisdictions that I've talked to feel very good about the number of election judges for the primary. The general election is another story. We don't want to end up like Wisconsin or like Georgia or like other states during the primary season that had major disruptions, if not chaos, at the polling place that stemmed largely from chronic understaffing at the polling place. We don't want that. We need 30,000 people to stand up and step up and do that job. Um, And that's never been a problem in Minnesota, but this is different this year. And the reason it's different, as some of your listeners I'm sure know from personal experience, um, election judges or poll workers, as they're sometimes called, uh, tend to skew a good bit older. They are disproportionately retirees. They are disproportionately seniors. They do a phenomenal job. But some portion of them are choosing to take themselves out of the running this year because they don't want to take the health risk. 
So we've got to replenish their ranks and avoid the kind of disruptions we've seen in other states. And so I'm trying to get the word out about that opportunity to remind people it is a paid opportunity. It is not a volunteer job. It requires only two hours of training. It can be done by folks as young as 16, not 18, but 16. It can be done outside of your own city and county. So you're not bound to where you live. If you know that there's a need nearby, you can go there as well. And so if folks are interested in that, they can go to mnvotes.org or even better than that, contact a city hall, their city hall or another. And uh, I think just it's important to, to mention, you know, election judges are hired, trained and paid by cities and sometimes counties. So our office doesn't have a direct role in that. But we do have uh, um, an interest, obviously, in making sure that everyone has what they need. And so we've been meeting, and I personally have been meeting with uh, city clerks and county auditors and others to make sure that we can share with them strategies for getting the number of folks that they need on Election Day and actually over-recruiting so that they have more in place, a cushion, a reserve of sorts, so that if some people back out at the last minute, which is what happened in Wisconsin and Georgia and other states, that they'll still be good to go. Now, you mentioned that uh, the deadline for counting the ballots is Thursday next week. For the general election, a judge signed off this week on an agreement you made with some groups that had actually sued you, and it uh, waives the witness requirement for the absentee ballots, and it allows seven days for counting after the election. Uh, Did you make an end run around the legislature in making that agreement? No. I followed the law. I went to the legislature uh, with a list of requests, and this was not among them. Um, it just wasn't something that uh, was uh, on our final list of things we wanted from the legislature. But then at the very end of the legislature's, uh, legislative session, we got sued. We have about 15 lawsuits going right now from the left, from the right, from Democrats, from Republicans. So that's what happens this season. But when you look at the cases and you look at the law, we've got to follow the law. Sometimes that makes Democrats happy. Sometimes that makes Republicans happy. And I just, I've got to follow the law. That's my obligation. So somebody's always going to be mad. Hmm. Um, But we thought that that's what the law compelled. Now, I I should point out for the general election, that's not a done deal yet. You're Hmm. right that uh, Judge Gruing and Ramsey County District Court ruled that way, but it's subject to appeal. It will be appealed. So it's not the final word yet. Right. All right. Uh, I'll let you go in a second here. But two years ago at this time, four years ago at this time, there was major concern about foreign interference in the election. Is that still a threat? And are you confident that this election in November and and the primary will be secure? It is still a threat. Uh, In fact, I just heard from someone yesterday at the Department of Homeland Security, and they are arranging for me and other secretaries to have uh, the latest in a series of um, Uh, confidential uh, intelligence briefings on the subject, but we did get an overview, and I'm not revealing anything that already hasn't been made public, but yes, it is a concern of the intelligence community that not just uh, one foreign adversary, but multiple, uh, have both the appetite and the capability to interfere. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean they will, but they have the appetite to and the capability to, and we've got to make sure that our systems are performing well. Am I confident? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm confident. I am cautiously optimistic. Like any institution, whether it's NPR or the University of Minnesota or Target or U.S. Bank, I cannot promise with 100% certainty that nothing bad's going to happen. That would be dishonest. What I can tell you is that every day we are minimizing the risks, working with intelligence officials, 
doing the analysis on our own systems, having outsiders also do the analysis on our own systems so that we can make sure we're covering up, um, you know, or covering any gaps that we need to cover. But I, I am cautiously optimistic that we'll, we'll do as we have for the last four years, which is keep the bad guys out. DFL Secretary of State Steve Simon, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Support comes from Bent Paddle Brewing Company, Frost River Trading Company, and OMC Smokehouse, makers of artisan ales and lagers, rugged wax canvas goods, and classic Southern-style barbecue. In Duluth's Lincoln Park, crafting something great. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about next week's primary election this hour. The race that has drawn by far the most money and the most attention this year is the one for the DFL nomination for Congress in the 5th Congressional District. The district includes Minneapolis and some of the close-in suburbs. Incumbent Democrat Ilhan Omar faces four challengers, but the one she's taking most seriously is lawyer and mediator Anton Melton Mukes, who's raised a boatload of money and has been advertising heavily. To get a sense of how that campaign is playing out, I'm joined now by Harry Colbert Jr. He's the editor-in-chief of North News, and he's with me on the phone now. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. I hope you are too. Thanks for coming on. Well, tell us Thank just you for to, having me. Oh, delighted. Tell us just to start with, what's it like to be a voter in Minneapolis right now? Uh, it's a pretty exciting time to be a voter in Minneapolis. There's a lot going on, obviously, um, with the race in the 5th. Um, there's several um, local House and Senate races going on, school board races, and then uh, you add on to that the civil unrest that we had and uh, voting during a, during a pandemic, and um, it's going to make for an interesting April 11, or excuse me, August 11. Yeah, I think I think we all agree about that. Now, let me t- talk about the 5th Congressional District specifically, because it seems like the case that Anton Melton Mukes is making is that Congresswoman Omar is more concerned about her own celebrity than about the needs of the district. Do you think that message is working? It's working with some people, um, that's for sure. Um, a lot of the talk among uh, the voters here in North Minneapolis has been the fact that um, uh, Representative Omar hasn't been in the district as much. They believe that she's been um, outside of the district and outside of the state um, Focus not only on her own quote unquote celebrity, but also on issues that aren't district related, more so uh, issues of foreign foreign affairs and foreign relations as it relates to uh, the middle Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, now Ilhan Omar recently, or I mean, as the campaign has been going, has been stressing her ties to the district. She's uh, talking about her progressive stands on the issues and. Um, citing a lot of the people who have endorsed her, including folks like the governor and Nancy Pelosi and a lot of others. How do you think her message yeah, is coming? Yeah, the attorney across? general as well. Right, right, and former congressman. Yes. Um, I think her message is also resonating with many voters here um, as well. So that's what's making this uh, a race to watch for sure. Uh, many people have seen her um, most recently during the George Floyd um, unrest and saw her out in the streets uh, marching side by side with them. And so the 
argument that uh, Melton Mukes is making for them doesn't resonate. Um, so I think that uh, she she is um, benefiting from, especially recently, from being more visible in the district. And then uh, and people still have an affinity for uh, Representative Omar um, as well. Right. Well, I mean, she won by 60 percent last time. I mean, yeah. Um, and you mentioned the unrest and the the police killing of George Floyd. It's been an incredibly difficult time for the city. Um, what kind of impact do you think that will have on this primary? Do you think that makes people less interested in it or more interested in it? I think more interested in it. Um, this is still a very transformative time in Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, throughout the nation and world. So people are very attuned to what's going on. When you juxtapose this race with a race that took place last Tuesday in St. Louis, longtime Congressman Lacey Clay was uh, unseated by a progressive, uh, quote-unquote, newcomer. Well, she ran against him two years ago, but certainly had uh, had never held office before, but she was very vocal in the uh, Ferguson protest, and that is what propelled her uh, past Lacey Clay. So I think that many eyes are on uh, this race as well to see if um, there's a challenge. But uh, the thing is, I don't think Melton Mukes is viewed as more progressive than uh, Representative Omar. I believe she's viewed as more of a progressive. And then there's also a hesitant because uh, people are wondering where's the money coming from Mm. Um, because there are a lot of big name donors that are out there and several who have um, GOP ties. Mm. Well, it's interesting you bring up that St. Louis race because typically in these primaries, these partisan primaries, the sort of middle of the road candidate is sort of at risk because the energy is on the side of the progressive or, or, you know, if it's a Republican conservative race, the energy is on the side of the conservative activists sometimes. Um, do you think that might actually help Omar this time because Anton Melton Mukes is really selling himself as sort of the more moderate person? Absolutely, I do. Um, I do think that that um, is factoring in with a lot of voters, especially the younger voters um, who are asking. Um, I've seen just chatter a lot of social media saying basically where this guy come from and uh, using words such as plant and things of that nature um, to describe him. So I think that's certainly um, in Omar's favor. Mm-hmm. And there are some other candidates in this race, I should say, Les Lester, Daniel Patrick McCarthy, John Mason. Uh, do they have much of a presence or is it mostly a two-person Not race as far as you can tell? It's, it's person race um those are if you ask the average voter on the streets um they know um these two individuals running off uh and then once again none of the other candidates have had the financial backing we're talking about basically three million dollars uh per candidate in 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 this dfl primary and so when you're turning on the television you're seeing ads from these two individuals whether you go to your youtube and and your video is um preempted by an ad from one of the candidates those are the people who people are uh seeing right now representative omar and uh anton melton mm-hmm. okay now i have to ask you this one finally because you're a newspaper reporter 
uh, the newspapers have endorsed here. The Star Tribune endorsed Melton Mukes. Uh, Insight News, where I think you used to work, endorsed yes. uh, Omar. Uh, do you think the newspaper endorsements matter much? Always they help, uh, but they matter uh, in terms of marketing. It's it's something that um, you can say, hey, I'm endorsed by Insight, or I'm endorsed by the Star Tribune, or I'm endorsed by North News, which in this race, neither candidate um, is endorsed. Hmm. Um, we didn't, we chose not to make any endorsements this time around. Um, but, uh, and that's more of a factor of me just coming into the role as editor-in-chief within within the month of the uh, race. So I thought it was unfair for me to make the endorsement hmm. through um, the newspaper that I just joined. Hmm. Um, but with that being said, um, uh, the endorsements help in terms of marketing. You can, it, you can put it on your material and say, hey, I'm endorsed by X, Y, or Z. Um, but in terms of someone saying, oh, I'm voting for candidate A or candidate B because the Star Tribune said so, uh, I don't think that that's happening anymore. I think people are more um, in tune to their particular uh, causes and follow the issues um, more more in-depthly than just a newspaper endorsement. Harry Colbert, Jr., Editor-in-Chief of North News, thanks so much for coming on, giving us a sense of how it's playing out. Thank you so much for having me. For the rest of the hour, we'll continue our conversation about Tuesday's Minnesota primary election. Because of COVID-19, lots of people are expected to vote by mail using absentee ballots, but still uh, only a fraction of those who will likely use mail-in ballots in November. Joining me now to talk about voting and some of the choices on the ballot in some of the primary races are two of our regular political commentators. Todd Rapp is president and CEO of the public relations firm Rapp Strategies. He tends to come at things from the DFL side of the aisle. And Maureen Shaver is here. She's a lobbyist, political veteran who looks at things from the Republican point of view. Todd and Maureen, thanks for coming on. I hope you're both holding up okay. Hello, Mike. Hey, Mike, definitely holding up okay. That's good to hear. I wish we were face-to-face, but we're uh, we're on the line here, so we'll see how it goes. Um, Todd, Omar versus Melton Mukes. Uh, like all primaries, this is an intra-party contest, so I'll start with you. How likely is it that Ilhan Omar could lose this primary? That's a good question, Mike, because we just don't have a lot of history to fall back on. I mean, we've, you know, Democrats have our share of of, uh, of party fights in the primary, you know, Don Frazier and Bob Short and Paul Wellstone and Jim Nichols, but they typically don't involve incumbents. And the, it's almost unheard of that a congressional incumbent has this kind of challenge. So it's pretty hard to tell. And I think, I think it's clear that, um, Representative Omar was surprised by the level of this challenge based on where her fundraising is. She does have a great deal of grassroots support. Um, The organizations that typically band together to support a strong Democratic candidate are behind her. But the idea that $3.2 million was raised in the second quarter by a challenger to her, and who knows how much in the five weeks since then, has made this into an... um, it's not just competitive, but it's incredibly unpredictable, considering that as many as 200,000 people may vote in this primary. Mm. And um, Harry Colbert Jr., who I just talked to before the news, made the point 
I think a really good point that Keith Ellison is backing Omar. He uh, represented the district for, what was it, 15 years before uh, Omar came in. Uh, how, how much of a help is that to her? Well, I think it, every um, strong supporter I mean, helps her out. I, I don't think that, I mean, and I may be wrong about this, and it's, you know, every voter's kind of making their own decision here, but I don't think people have doubts about Representative Omar's, you know, the, the, the her commitment to the issues that, that Congressional District 5 is facing, or particularly any doubts that she's been a forceful opponent of President Trump. But she's running for her first reelection, and I think people are still getting to know her in a district where over a 56-year period, there were only three people who, who represented the district. And and I think that as they, as they've been getting to know her over the last year and a half or two, two years, um, they're learning about her agenda, they're learning about her style, but they don't know her well enough yet. And so the series of controversies that came up all of a sudden became something that would balance, you know, what her, for example, her forcefulness against President Trump. People are discovering her in her own district, and and I think that they're kind of weighing right now um, what they want the future of their representation to be. My guess is that she's still in a pretty strong position going into Tuesday, but uh, let's face it, this is a challenge like we've never seen before in Minnesota. Maureen, are the Republicans uh, sitting back and eating popcorn just watching all this? I was just going to uh, use that same um, uh, analogy. It, we are the Republicans are just sitting back and watching what's going on in the fifth, although they are paying it close attention to um, the seventh district congressional race where there is a Republican uh, uh, primary against uh, to see who's going to. Uh, take on Colin Peterson. But I do think uh, it, they're going to sit back and watch. I think we're also going to um, see uh, this is such an unpredictable primary because there's no statewide race that's driving everybody to the polls. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for people in our business to predict. Uh, and especially when you've saw, seen this much money so close to the race being invested in this race. I do think the endorsements are interesting. Uh, so the attorney general coming out, you know, for a seat that was was his previous is interesting, but it's almost more interesting when they don't do it. It would have been a bigger news if he hadn't. Hmm. And I think one of the bigger endorsements uh, kind of conversation is the fact that Governor Walls has come out in northern Minnesota in a legislative race um, and taken, uh, the, you know, supporting the incumbent in um, uh, uh, in, in the DFL uh, side up in um, uh, Duluth. Uh, in Duluth. Mm -hmm. And um, as I pointed out to someone the other day, the governor didn't get the endorsement of the DFL party either. So he's in a little bit of a, a different position to do that. Okay, let me. And that get, would be the Eric Simonson race. Yeah, let me get about. let me get back to that in a minute. But you brought up the seventh uh, congressional district, uh, which covers most of western Minnesota. Um, a, a Republican primary there to uh, see who will f presumably face off against uh, Colin Peterson. He's he's got some primary opponents of his own, but he's been there for for a long time and presumably will come out of the primary. We think. Um, so you got Michelle Fishbach, a longtime legislator, actually from a quirk of Minnesota's politics, became lieutenant governor. Yes. <laughs> uh, Dave Hughes is the candidate who uh, ran against Peterson the last couple election cycles. Uh, Noel Collis is running, He's and there are a couple other candidates. Fishbach has the party endorsement. Is, is she in pretty good shape, do you think, or will Hughes give her a challenge? 
Again, I think it's going to test the the interest in the race. Uh, how does a pandemic uh, affect these elections? And also the fact that we don't have a, a big statewide race. I do think um, having the endorsement up there and uh, uh, Michelle Fishbach has served uh, that in that community for a long time. Um, she will have a very active uh, in the organization of the Minnesota Con- Citizens Concern for Life. But my understanding is that um, Noel Collis is, is pouring a fair amount of money into the race here again in the end, and that Dave Hughes, who almost came close to beating Colin Peterson uh, two years ago, still has some party loyalists that are are on his side. So again, it's one of these races that we're going to be uh, watching and looking at on Tuesday night or maybe Friday morning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Todd Rapp, from the DFL point of view, how worried should Colin Peterson be? I think Colin Peterson is always worried about that district. I mean, it it just goes right down the western edge of the state, and Donald Trump won that by twenty some points in the in two thousand and sixteen. But you know, Peterson at the the same time, I mean, he's survived in that district since nineteen ninety. Um, he survived over the last probably four elections where the transition from a swing district into a, a Republican leaning, and now it it would be called a solid Republican if he wasn't running. Um, but he's he's survived all of those, and uh, and my guess with two years to go until they run again in a redistricted area out there, and that district's probably going to look greatly different. He probably enters this the favorite, but um, um, most likely because of presidential turnout, as opposed to any uh, political, uh, any other political environment that you would mm-hmm. describe. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, Maureen? Can can uh, a Republican nominated candidate, Michelle Fishbach or somebody else beat Colin Peterson this year? Well, I think it all depends on how President Trump does up there, and he carried that district um, uh, with a great deal of votes uh, in 2016, and I think that's what Republicans are counting on. The problem is we're running against Colin Peterson, and Colin P- everybody in the district knows uh, the, uh, Congressman Peterson, so even the Republicans sometimes uh, jump over and, and vote for him and then jump back to the Republican column. So a little bit, it's going to depend upon how the president does. And then, of course, uh, putting up a strong candidate uh, against him. Well, let me zoom out a little bit and just ask you both. There's so much uncertainty right now and so much chaos. Uh, uncertainty because of the pandemic about school and work and whether you're going to get sick or not. Uh, we saw what happened in Minneapolis earlier this year with the, the George Floyd's killing and, and the unrest that followed. Does does all this just add to the sort of unrest about politics, uh, or do the rules still apply, do you think? And Todd, let me start with you. Well, I guess it kind of depends which which rules you mean. I mean, Minnesota, we, we haven't quite seen yet how voters are going to adapt, but there have been multiple local elections since the pandemic hit, for example, school referenda, where more than half of the people have voted by earlier absentee voting. And it's turned out to be a pretty pretty successful high turnout and, uh, you know, and just strong public involvement, even though, you know, we're all trying to do social distancing, we're at home more, and so on. I think one of the basic rules of any election is that if the president, an incumbent president who's running for a second term, wants to dominate the, thematically the election, he or she can. And Donald Trump clearly wants the attention on him. Um, that now for him, that's become more complex because we're in the middle of a 
clear national crisis, um, maybe two national crises when you look at the, um, you know, the, the, the cultural and racial challenges we're having. Um, and, but he still wants the attention to be on him. And so when one of the oldest rules in politics really is, is that in a president's reelection, it's a referendum on how well the president did. And I don't see, think that's changing at all. In fact, if anything, I think it's become stronger this year because the president himself wants the focus on him. Maureen, what do you think just about the general landscape that we see around us these days? Well, Mike, I always like to tell people that campaigns aren't rocket science, but they aren't random either. And this isn't the first time uh, our country is, has been in crisis of many uh, types during an election. And I think simply put, the 2020 election is going to be a referendum on the president. And uh, his job approval numbers are probably the best pr- pr- predictor of whether an incumbent wins. So uh, if if we're focused on the economy and covid you know, I think the president's going to have some trouble. And the question is, what does that do to down-ballot races in Minnesota? What do you think it does? I think it's a challenge. That's the, I think that's why we'll see things up in the 7th District, as we were talking earlier. Um, uh, you know, Republicans should be able to beat uh, Colin Peterson. Uh, but if the republic, if the president is, does not run strong, if some of his supporters stay home, if they look to, if they see Joe Biden as a more acceptable candidate than Hillary Clinton, uh, all of those things are going to come into play. And uh, as we look at things right now, without a big change, and granted, things can change uh, between now and November third. Although in Minnesota, we can start voting for president on September eighteenth. Um, I, I do think that uh, it's it, it's going to have a significant impact. The, pre, the pre, if this race is a if the president doesn't lay out soon um, what he wants the next four years to look look like, it's not going to be a binary choice. I think it's going to be a re- referendum on him. But if he gives Minnesotans a binary choice, then I I think the uh, he he has a better chance uh, of winning here. The question is. Um, will he do that? I, I don't think people are saying, I want four more years of this. Hmm. Well, let's get back to November in a minute, but let's uh, look a, a, just a little more at the primary coming up. Uh, and Maureen, you brought up legislative primaries earlier. We had a story this week about three DFL incumbents who lost their endorsements to other candidates uh, this year. And they're running anyway. So if they don't win on Tuesday or Thursday, whenever the votes are counted, if they don't win, they're done. Uh, This is Senator Jeff Hayden of Minneapolis, Representative Ray Dean of Minneapolis, and Senator Eric Simonson of Duluth. Uh, Todd, at this point, do you think any of those incumbents are in trouble? Well, um, Mike, I would say that the the one up in Duluth is a little bit more interesting because the the, the the division up there is a pretty clean one. Eric Simonson comes out of a more uh, moderate position. He has been trying to advocate for a broader economic development agenda up in northeast Minnesota, including mining. Um, Jen McCune, a little, she got the endorsement, and she's coming at it clearly from the left. And Duluth has become a very progressive hotbed um, in Minnesota politics 
right now. I think the two Minneapolis primaries, I think what we've seen is that there have been a lot of what I would say is the more institutional um, organizations have been backing the, the, the two incumbents there, Hayden and, and Dean. Um, I think Dean may be helped, not for sure, by the fact that there are multiple challengers on the primary ballot. Overall, I think they, they both have looked back at that endorsement process, and one of the things they said was, with such a crazy pandemic year, even the endorsements themselves, you can't mm-hmm. really read into it how right. well that reflects the constituencies, because there weren't as many active people. It was all done virtually and so on. And so I think of the three, the one I'm going to watch most closely is probably the Duluth one on Tuesday night. Would you agree with that, Maureen? Yeah, I think uh, I, I I do think the Minneapolis one is going to be different, to, difficult, more difficult to call because there is such a reason for minutes uh, uh, for people in the fifth district to go because they have a, a very uh, contested race. So I think it's a little again, a little harder to understand how that will um, uh, uh, play out. I do think some of the uh, some of those in Minneapolis think that the that that will help the incumbents so that that would help Ray Dean and Jeff Hayden. Because the more people that turn out know them, know their work, um, and the other candidates are just not as well known. So I do think that that congressional race is going to have some impact. And I think, Todd, uh, I think a lot of people will be watching what happens in that Duluth race, uh, partly because uh, it's a little bit uh, of the old versus the new. And that's that's not to say good, bad, or indifferent for either of them, but it is going to give us a direction about where that part of the region is headed. Are there any Republican legislators, legislative incumbents facing tough primary challenges? You know, I'm going to be watching three or four races uh, uh, because it's they're they're turning out in the in, uh, at the end of this um, primary season to be kind of interesting. The, there's a, a group in the Republic in the House called the New Republican House Caucus, which tends to have some members who would be. They're pre-Trump. They're not. This is not a Trump thing, but more conservative. And they've taken on some more mainstream Republicans over the years. And in the last few, uh, in the last week or so, um, they're they they and some allies, an uh, organization called Action for Liberty, which is is more loosely aligned. I don't know that there's any um, uh, real coordination of any sort. I'm not suggesting that. But they are supporting candidates that are taking on either endorsed candidates like we have here in the western suburbs or um, are are coming on strong in races where there weren't endorsements with some retirements. And in a few and three of those seats, um, who wins will matter because they're 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 running they're in close races. So this I would call um, down in the representative tab keys area in Shakopee. Um, a former member is running against an endorsed candidate, Eric Mor- Mortensen, or not sure who got the endorsement there, actually. Uh, in the western suburbs, in Kelly Morrison's seat, uh, there's an endorsed candidate, Andrew Myers, running against a longtime activist, Marianne Stebbins. And um, uh, down in um, uh, the Lake Crystal Medelia area, uh, uh, sitting incumbent Jeremy Munson, who has has been a key member of the mm-hmm. new Republican House caucus, is being taken on by Yvonne Simonson. And then in that uh, Senator Jensen seat out in Carver County, uh, there was not an endorsement, but mm-hmm. um, Julia Coleman is running uh, running against uh, Mr. Funk, the Victoria mayor. So uh, we'll, be, we'll be watching those closely because they will have an impact on who may um, – uh, help take the majorities in either of those bodies uh, come November. Mm-hmm. And Todd, do you see any uh, patterns or major issues emerging in some of these legislative primaries? 
Well, w- one of the interesting patterns that is that uh, legislative caucus leaders are being challenged this right. year. Kurt Dowd has a yeah. has a challenger from the right. Paul Gazelka has one. Um, even Susan Kent over here in Woodbury has one, although a, a, a real cynic would say it's interesting that her primary opponent has the same last name as her general election opponent. Um, I, I, I think it's the fact that caucus leaders get challenged is fairly new in Minnesota. I mean, typically speaking, that they're, they are protected in their districts. Um, a second thing I'm seeing is that there's some pretty, um, pretty strong races um, on the, for the party that's challenging in some of the most important swing districts. I look at Senate District 56, Dan Hall's seat. There's three primary challengers on the Democratic side. We still don't know who's riding against Warren Limmer, which is probably one of those we-have-to-watch seats in Senate District 34. Mm-hmm. And I think Maureen points out one of the most interesting ones, which is the Shakopee seat, where two years ago Eric Mortensen knocked off uh, incumbent Bob Lunin, and that probably sealed the election for Democratic Brad Tapke. We've got to see what's going to happen in this primary on Tuesday and whether the Republican Party can come back together afterwards to mount um, an important challenge against Tapke. How do these candidates even campaign during a pandemic? Well, you you end up doing increasing amount um, through, obviously, through virtual, through email, um, through social media, through word of mouth. That is, is that you you reach out to an army of supporters and you get them to reach out to 10 friends who hopefully reach out to 10 friends and so on and so forth. Candidates aren't necessarily avoiding door knocking. I've heard plenty of reports, at least um, in the eastern suburbs, of, of candidates getting out there. But there is certainly a lot of cautious, a lot more social distancing um, for some candidates, a little bit more mask wearing. The other thing you're going to see is you're just going to see, I think, more direct mail. And I think you're going to see more localized cable TV commercials than we've seen in the past. Just because as as an investment goes, you've got a real chance of reaching more people that way than you do with some of the more um, traditional retail campaigning. And Marine. Mike, you know, I think yeah. it's hard on some of these candidates, too, because um, campaigns get volunteers by creating um, events in their community. And so whether that's going to a big baseball tournament or many, many parades to not have the opportunities to do those kind of things, it's just harder to get people to remember that they have campaigns. I've been I've been advising candidates, do not let this summer pass by, because as soon as Labor Day comes, um, you're going to get caught up in all the other races, the United States Senate, the presidential, every member of Congress. So get out there and do a lot of work while you still own a little bit of the space, whether it's getting more lawn signs up than you normally would because people are in their communities and such. So I feel for these campaigns. It's, it's, it's very hard to get some of that synergy going. At the same time, I know uh, some are doing door knocking, but they're on both sides of the aisle. They're using an aggressive uh, uh, phone program. They've got uh, these uh, very high tech phone programs where candidates are reaching out either not only directly, but then people on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And the other odd thing is we heard Steve Simon say earlier, we might not even have the results on primary night. And certainly when the general election comes around, it doesn't sound like we're going to have results for a while. What is that going to do? 
Well, well I, I think would... we just have to set that expectation right away that 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 people aren't going to know exactly who won uh, the next morning. Um, at the same time, our system's going to work. We should have confidence in this system. We're ready for this, uh, and and uh, it, it, there's going to be a great deal of in, uh, interest in this election. Minnesotans are always at the top of the list for turnout, and I think we should celebrate that in some ways. Todd, what do you yeah. think? Well, not to, to test um, my math skills too much, but we'll have 80 or 85 percent of the vote counted in most districts by the end of the night on Tuesday. But there will still be some absentee ballots coming in, no question about it. Um, I, I think I think we'll get comfortable with that being the, the, the normal for a while. I, I You know, for all the controversy around ranked choice voting, the one thing we haven't seen too much is people pushing back because it takes a couple days to figure it out. There tends to be trust that the system um, isn't being tampered with during those extra days, and people are fine sitting back and watching uh, what comes in. Just like in ranked choice voting, we'll probably have a pretty good idea who's won, and we'll probably have a pretty good idea the two or three districts that we have to wait for. Hmm. Well... Speaking as uh, someone who broadcasts on election nights, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking to somebody who likes to do analysis with you, Mike, it's it's always more fun <laughs> to know exactly the results on Tuesday night. Okay, we've just got less than a minute left, so let me ask you for a quick yes or no. Uh, the president has had his eye on Minnesota. He thinks he can win here. His people have been here working early. Do you think Donald Trump can win Minnesota this year? Todd, start with you. No way. Maureen. I think he's going to try. Well, we know he's going to try. Well, I think I think his um, I think the geography is getting smaller around the country. And so I think he's probably going to stay in Minnesota because he's going to need Minnesota to win. All right. Maureen Shaver. She's our Republican analyst. Todd Rapp. He's our DFL analyst. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to talk to both of you. I'm sorry I can't be face to face. Maybe we'll give you a ring Tuesday night and check in if we see some results coming in. Sounds good. Thanks so much. And I should just say we will be on the air from 9 to 10 Tuesday night talking about what we do know. And I'll also tell you that Angela Davis will be back here on Monday. Thanks for listening. That's our program for now. You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. To add your voice to the conversation, you can call in at 651 227-6000, or tweet us at Angela Davis NPR. And if you missed us live, you'll find all of our shows by subscribing to this podcast. Thanks for listening.